would please turn in your Bibles to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. We are looking at verses 7 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 18. Please follow in the reading of the Word of God. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself, that is, he is Christ. Let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as the measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast and what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Father, we come before you to look at a very important topic that the Apostle Paul has laid before us. And Father, I pray that you will open our eyes that we may see, that, Father, we may understand the danger of this that is being discussed in 12 through 18, but we will take what you have given us in 7 through 18 and understand that character, that measuring stick that we can see in individuals and in leaders, that, Father, we may understand those who are true, and those who are charlatans. Help us, Father, to discern. Help us to grow in our grace. Help us to grow in our faith. And, Father, help us to be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. To you, my Savior and Lord. Amen. As I began in this text, this section, several several months ago, it dawned on me that there's technically there's not a lot of theology here, but as I look at the text, it is extraordinarily rich in 
as I even spend more time in it, I see more and more almost daily how desperate it is needed in the evangelical church today in America. When I look at it in its context, and I understand all of the letters that were written to the Corinthians, I understand that the Apostle Paul is confronting Corinth, and he's confronting them on the issue of false teachers in the congregation, and the fact that the congregation had originally not said anything. They had not done anything about it. And um, the subtleness of the false is someone who is a deceiver does not come up and say, let me tell you that I'm a deceiver. All right. They are going to talk Christianese. I have sat down and had long conversations with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and they use the same terminology that is used in the evangelical church. Okay. They don't come and say, we are deceivers. There are those who are deceivers. They willfully know where they are and what they're doing. There are those who are deceived. They both look alike. One will sit down and reason from the scriptures. One will not. Paul is confronting the Corinthian congregation who has come back to repentance, has come back to restore the relationship with the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul is smart enough to know that even though the majority of the congregation has moved back, you will still have these people in the congregation, these false apostles. Okay, They will have great verbiage. They will have great words. They will use them regularly. They will be adamant. They will be confident. And yet they are still attacking the credibility of the Apostle Paul. Why? Because I can't slide error in past Paul unless I discredit Paul. All right. We call it character assassination. And you know what? You don't have to have evidence. Let me just sow a seed of doubt. A seed of doubt. Why? Because if I sow a seed of doubt, even to a person like the Apostle Paul, then the people will lose trust in the Apostle Paul, the writings of Apostle Paul, his teachings. And you know what? At that point, they can begin to take over. These are servants of Satan. They are servants of the fathers of lies. The doctrine of demons. And they strive to undo God's word, God's work. Do you understand that? And we all say, well, but God is sovereign. Read 1 Corinthians. They were having some success. This was a true church. Go read the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelations. Why? The servants of Satan are powerful. They're slick. They're gifted. They're taught. And you know what is an amazing thing about them? You're not going to believe this. They are seriously motivated. Paul is, is a funny man because 
One of the things in my readings of Paul for some time is he struggles to defend himself. He could care less if they say, you know, to look at him, he ain't much to look at. He could care less if they say, you know, when he speaks, it's contemptible. He could care less. But one thing that the Apostle Paul would die for is the true message of the gospel. Regardless of how articulate he was or he wasn't, that he would defend. That he would defend. He struggled to defend himself and it was because he was a humble man. He understood it. He grasped it. And you know what? You can sit and tell me, well, you know, you're cruising along the road to Damascus and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. Poof. Probably would shift into a different level of humility, wouldn't it? Okay. Well, yeah, that probably would do it. But I'm trying to figure out how any Christian understanding their salvation could have pride. That don't make sense to me. It just flat out don't make sense to me. Paul did not defend himself on the personal level. He defended himself on the messenger side. And what do you see here in this text, 7 to 18, is that he basically contrasts himself to his accusers, to those who are sowing seeds of doubt. And you know what? This is a very cursory reading here. People would read over this. You would never hear this preached in a topical church. Okay, And in a lot of expository churches, this text would be taught in one setting. But I think it is more than that. Because it gives some amazing guidelines that I call a true man of God is known by. How can I identify the true man of God in contrast to a false? I told you guys one time that I was listening to Kenneth Copeland. At the time that I had turned him on, I was teaching First Peter. And I had gotten home from church, and I flipped it on, and there he was. And he was teaching the exact same text that I taught. And so I was fascinated. I just taught this text. Let's hear what old Ken's got to say. I'm sitting there listening, and I tell you what, for 20 minutes you would swear that we had the same notes. The problem is it was a 30-minute show. And that last 10 was so deviant that I about fell out of my chair. And yet, if you looked at the first half of it, he was spot on. And if you listen to it, and I'm telling you, I, you I'm not kidding you. I, you'd have swore I was like, that man has stole my notes. But he didn't finish reading them. Because he blew it in the last 10 minutes. I can think of no greater time right than right now than for the church to be able to tell a true man of God and how he is known. Paul telling the Ephesian elders that he would not see them again. And that they need to guard the flock. Because ravenous wolves, he knew that when he left, 
the wolves were going to come in from behind him. And he even made this statement that they may even raise among the Ephesian elders. They could be the church leadership that Paul had put in place while he was in Ephesus. They could rise up. Even from among themselves. If you go look at the church in Ephesus, um, in 1 Timothy, Paul had left him there to straighten out a mess. And you see that he had kicked two guys out by name and given them over to Satan to teach their flesh not to blaspheme. So the warning wasn't heeded. But I can look at 90 AD and see the letter to the church in Ephesus. And it was they were testing people. But they still had a problem. They had lost their first love. James tells us that Satan is about like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. Satan works through the deceived. And Satan works through deceivers. They infiltrate the work of God. And their job and their purpose is to destroy it. Destroy it. Bring shame on the name of Jesus Christ. The false have always been around. And God's people have always been called to be discerning. And yet we are in an age right now where that's wrong. You can do anything you want in church. Just don't point out the error of it. I've never seen anything like it. I have the Bible. They say I believe the Bible. Just don't offend nobody with it. I was talking to a pastor here in, in the community. And he said, uh, I'd asked him if he had read uh, Strange Fire. And he says, I don't read controversial books. What do you do with the gospel? You don't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That was just... I mean, that was so controversial, they killed him. God's people have been called to discern. How do I know if a man is truly of God? I'll go review quickly, and then I'm just barely going to step in to the sixth point, because it's going to take me a while to get through this, because I think that this is the biggest tragedy that exists in the body of Christ today. First of all, what is the relationship with Christ? False come in new into town. They probably have a letter of recommendation. Today, they may have a diploma. They may have someone has commended them or they have filled out an application online and have sent you a message so you can hear the power of what they do. Is that evidence of their relationship with Christ? I don't think so. Paul's relationship with Christ was evident to the lost and the saved. They both saw it. And they said, wow, you know, look at the change in this man. Second thing is in verse 8. What is their impact on the church? What is their impact on the church? Are they building up the church? Are they strengthening the church? 
Or are they dividing the church, tearing down the church? Paul got on the Corinthians in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Corinthians and says, you're causing schisms. There are divisions in the church. Why? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. They don't sound right. They don't sound right. Do they have compassion for the people? Are they willing to lay their life down for the sheep? See, a false is in it for himself. A true will lay his life. Listen, I'll give you, you know, it's sometimes easier for us to lay our life down for the flock, isn't it? Than to give up time for the flock. I'd rather die for the sheep. Just don't take up my time. The Apostle Paul labored day and night, house to house, working a job and teaching in the city of Corinth for two years. He poured himself out in his last letter as a drink offering. He had compassion for the people God had set before him. House come, he wrote four letters to the Corinthians. I would have wrote the first one and said, what a bunch of morons and been on my way because we all know the text that we knock the dust off our feet and move on. The true servant is known for his disdain for fleshly methods. He's not into human wisdom. He's not into oratory skills. He's not into powerful personalities. He only knows Christ and Him crucified. But He also has integrity in verse 11. What you see is what you get. It doesn't change. There are people that I have watched in my life that they're one thing before the crowd and they're another thing when they're alone. Many of the scandals that I have lived through and seen, I see that. Uh, just recently, we had several here. That they're one thing in front of the crowd. Powerful spokesmen for God. They're another thing when it comes to being with just individuals. There are so many out there today in pulpits right now who are basically self-proclaimed. They're one thing on stage. There's something completely different off stage. All right. Now then. The last section is verses 12 through 18. And I would almost look at it as a summary. As a summary. Okay? It's humility. It's humility. Verse 12 says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves... And compare themselves with themselves. They are without understanding. 
And if you really think about that for a second, isn't it true? If I'm the standard and I've exceeded my standard. <laughs> so what does that mean? <laughs> Paul is going to contrast himself in these verses, these six verses to his accusers. And you and I need to see this. The false, in the ones that are in Corinth, we keep it in our context, show their pride at every turn and at every chance. Uh, their worship service was chaotic. Why? Everybody wanted to prophesy. So everybody was just standing up saying they were speaking for the Lord. Think about that for a second. Some were speaking in gibberish. Some were speaking in foreign languages. And he said that even if the laws come in, they would think you were nuts. Well, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a political convention. Like I said, nuts. Okay, this is the stuff that we have to see because there, if there's anything that marks a fake, okay, if there's one thing that you and I should be able to pick up on just like that, the easiest mark for us to see is that they are proud. They are proud. They are self-willed. They are arrogant. They are self-centered. They are self-promoting. And they are self-aggrandizing. And you cannot hide that. It oozes forth. We look at Scripture. If you look at all of the false... Teachers, I mean, go back to Balaam. All right, go back to anywhere you want to go. You deal with the false. There is a constant thread that feels every false teacher to this very day. Pride. It's pride. Jeremiah wrote of him. Chapter 23, verse 32. Jeremiah's ministry was to try to get Judah and Benjamin to repent. The ten northern tribes had gone into Assyrian captivity. The Babylonians were standing at the proverbial gate. And unless they repented and came back to the Lord, they were going to go into captivity. Jeremiah was sent by God to tell them. Repent. Come back. Look what he says. Behold, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods. And what else? Reckless boastings. My people are being led by people who boast. Recklessly. Reckless boastings. Peter speaks of them. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 18. 218. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity. I know three pastors in town right now that if you go listen to them, they're going to tell you what they did this week. And they've done it for years. 
That's all it is. For years and years and years and years. And they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Why? I am speaking vain things. Let me tell you how to be wealthy and at peace and healthy with Lord Jesus Christ. And if it don't work for you, then give me money and it will work for me. That's how they do it. If you go over just a little ways. To uh, the letter of Jude. Jude 16. These are grumblers following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. They speak arrogantly. Listen, this really shouldn't surprise us. It's been going on for some time. And if you're really honest, if you look at the, I don't know, the prototypical, I guess is a good way to describe it. Let me read to you these two verses and tell me. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He's speaking of the Antichrist. What is he? He's arrogant. You know, I, I, I'm hearing people call people narcissistic now. And you know what's amazing about that? They're not offended. I remember when if you called someone narcissistic, it would offend them. But now it's like, I've arrived. There's nothing more that characterizes a false teacher than their their pride. And, and And it's maddening to me because when I came to salvation, one of the things that hit me, I mean, is the degree of my sin and the crushing weight that it had on me. It had absolute, complete mastery over me. I had no options with it. I was crushed under its weight. Now listen, when you wake up to that position, what room do you have for pride? And you know, everybody says, well, Terry, you listen. Are you born of man and woman? Your sin is less than mine? Whoa, I believe that's pride. Wasn't that the issue that got us into this mess? 
You eat of this, you will what? Know as God knows. And yet, it is alive and well and thriving in the United States church. Not only is it thriving, it's encouraged. And I've never seen anything like it. And I keep thinking, I remember Dr. MacArthur made a statement once, it's been a few years ago, he says, I don't believe at the raptures there's going to be enough of us missing that anybody's going to notice. Oh, what? He's got 8,000 people three times a day on Sundays. And you're telling me they're not going to notice. But the more I, I walk and I listen and I pay attention, I realize, you know what? He might be right. He might be right. Revelations chapter 13, verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. How can you spot him? They speak arrogantly. Puffs of words. I think the definition that I would go if I went to Webster's was egomaniacs. And sometimes we can keep it under control. But you think about the number of times that you deal with somebody where they want an accolade. Think about it. Well, you know, you'd have a better relationship if you would build them up. I don't have to build them up. Oh, you don't understand. We're in an age where there's low self-esteem. Really? I've never seen that. I'm 58 years old. I ain't never seen low self-esteem. What does it exactly look like? I don't see it. I don't see it. In, even the sad, poor, depressed me. That just means you're so focused on yourself. You don't think you're getting what you need. This is a bitterness to me, people. You'd have never guessed that, did you? I do not see pride anywhere in Scripture, nor the ability to embrace it. How in the world could a Christian have pride? When we observe the true teacher, the true servant of God, there is a simple characteristic that should stand out in an awe. In awe. Humility. I have traveled outside of this country, and one of the things that I am so amazed at is the humility of all of the saints. Whether they're pastors, whether they're directors of, of, of jurisdictions, whether they are part of, I don't care. They can be, I watch these widows, they bring the widows in in Russia, and they live in the church, and they keep it clean. In the church buildings. They've got a big old pile of quilts over in corners that you'll see. They'll fold them up on Sunday morning and put them in a closet. They unfold them. That's what they sleep on. And I tell you what, you can get off the floors in them churches. Because they are going to keep it spotless. Why? That is what God called them to. And they do it with a servant's heart that says, I'm not too proud for this. 
I'm not too proud. I watch pastors forsake their money for their families and live on vegetables an extra week because somebody in their congregation needed something. There is no pride. There is no pride. Pride is what you see in the false. Humility is what you see in the true. But you know what? You can call it a dividing line. You can call it whatever you want to do. That is the single most observable difference between the false and the true. I see people right now who take the name of Christ who are arrogant. And one of the things, you know what's amazing about arrogance and pride and boasting? It's the norm. So when you meet somebody who's truly humble, you're like, wow, dude, where did that come from? You're not from around here, are you? No one has more, was more noble. No one was more powerful. No more, no one had a wider impact on the church than the Apostle Paul. Yet, when he spoke of himself, you think about what the Apostle Paul did. Think about, do you realize that if you're a Gentile today, you're fruit of the Apostle Paul? Think about that. Think about the churches that he founded. Think about the churches that, that he walked with. Think about the precious saints of God that he ministered to. Think about get, giving the gospel to the Praetorium Guard. I always thought about his, his first imprisonment. They didn't put him in a jail cell. They chained him to a Roman soldiers and they had 12 hour shifts with the man. Chained to that guy. And he looked at it as a privilege. And I bet that soldier is like, does this guy ever shut up? When does he sleep? You ever thought about that? Everything he looked at was for the glory of Christ and the cross. Yet, in this letter, 2 Corinthians, when he spoke of himself, you know how he described himself? A garbage bucket. That's what a clay pot is. It was what the trash of the house was carried out and chucked over the back fence. A garbage, a waste bucket, a clay pot. The amazing reality is that the glory of God shining in the person of Christ, the brilliant shining glory of the gospel was in a container for garbage. Now then, how do you get pride out of that? I'm a garbage bucket. But I'm an important garbage bucket. I won't tell you what else they used him for. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 and following. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorant in unbelief. That's how the Apostle Paul looked at himself. I am a blasphemer. I am a violent aggressor. I am a persecutor. I am a garbage bucket. 
Verse 15 of that text, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. He was the chief sinner. Romans chapter 7, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. See, that's humility. That's the person who says, you know what? I understand the depth of my sin. And I got no room for anything. At best, I'm a clay pot. I am a garbage bucket. And you know what? His humility, the Apostle Paul's humility. Listen, Paul was an educated man. He was in Tarsus. There's a college in Tarsus. If you lived there and was a resident of that, you got to go to it. He got into seminary, was a Pharisee, a student of Gamali. This was not an idiot. And yet he never, never defended, but my education. Nope, I'm a trash can. With the brilliant, shining glory of Jesus Christ inside. His humility was evident to the saints and his humility was evident to those who didn't believe. And it stood out as true humility today stands out. In contrast, any false can be seen. Why? There's plenty of proof. Look at them. Look at what they were doing to the church in Corinth. The Turmoil that they put in there. Why? I have a higher knowledge. I've studied under such and such. I have a letter of recommendation from such and such. I can do this. I can do that. Look at me. See, there's plenty of proof of the Apostle Paul, um, his apostleship, the calling of his apostleship, his integrity, and the Corinthians knew the Apostle Paul. They personally knew the Apostle Paul. They knew him intimately for two years, two visits. They knew who this man was. And even then, he showed his humility. You know, just go a cursory reading of Paul's life. You never see anything about the Apostle Paul. The only time I ever see him say something about himself, Timothy. Bring me my coat and the parchments. That's it. That's it. How could they be confused on who the true was and who the false was? Just looking at one attribute of humility versus pride. He showed his humility. He lived his humility. It was evident to all people. They could see for themselves. You can see the pride in people. It is everywhere. It's the norm. So when you see humility, you stand in awe of it. It's like, wow, what was that? I mean, it was like Durant got MVP in the NBA. And you know what he got up there and said? Highest scoring average. He does this, rebounds this, and carries the team and all the rest of it. You know what he said? Is all because of my mom. And everybody's like, well, that was powerful. Yeah, kind of a shock, huh? Somebody didn't take credit for nothing. 
You don't know what to do with it. And I watched all the sport writer. I just can't believe it. That was one of the most powerful speeches I ever heard. I said, that wasn't a speech. That was a kid stanking his mom. Ain't no speech in that. That's a kid with a heart. I look at the Corinthian church and I, I wonder how they can see for themselves the pride of the false. And it's an easy contrast to the person of Paul. The true humility of that man, that precious man of God. And yet when the false arrived, what happened? The people listened. Many were swayed. And you know what? They even joined in a mutiny against the Apostle Paul. This precious, humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? The Apostle Paul defends his authority. Why? And part of his defense is what? His humility. It's his humility. I'm going to share with you a text. It's, it's, it's missed a lot. I've never understood why they call them minor prophets. I, I, don't, I don't really know how you get a minor prophet. I mean, he may not have been a wordy prophet, but if he's a prophet, he's just a minor prophet. Does that mean that he was under 18? How does that work? Anyway. For the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Very few people have ever read this, and when they do, they're just kind of reading through because the pastor yelled at them that they don't read their Bible. He has told you, O man, what is good. Now think about this for a second. He has told you what is good. God has told you what is good. This is going to be good, is what God's saying. And what does the Lord require of you? Oh, we really ought to pay attention to this, huh? But you do justice to love kindness. And one other thing. Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Do we understand what is the most necessary for a servant of the Lord? The single most important virtue? It's humility. Jesus himself said, I have not come to do my will, but he who sent me. How humbling is that? He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Take on the veil of humanity to become man incarnate? To walk among us? How humbling is that? That is our single most important virtue, people. is humility, and that's the one that we degrade the most. You know what? I watch people deal with the text out of Matthew, and it's funny to watch them because it's, they try to do spiritual yoga things to make it work, and, and it's really not that hard. But anyway, the Lord tells us to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Okay? What does holy mean? Set apart. Okay? All right. Is it natural for humans to be humble? So you could say it would be set apart from us. So if I was going to be holy, how would I be holy? That it would be seen, visibly seen by anybody and everybody, regardless of their spiritual condition. 
Humility. Humility. The greatest evidence of humility, there's no greater virtue to a Christian than humility. I uh, have a definition of humility that I'll give you that you can see the difference, but then I have a quote I'll give you that's better than mine. My definition of humility is the absence of pride. You guys know how I am. I don't have great big definitions. But I found this definition by a guy named Calvin. And he's not a comic book character. John Calvin said this. Humility, quote, is a true and genuine sense of conviction that one is utterly and completely unworthy of the goodness, mercy, and grace of God and incapable of anything of value apart from the divine gift. Unquote. That's good, isn't it? That guy did a good job. Considering he's writing like in the 1500s. That, that, that's just a good definition. And the problem that I'm watching that exists is we don't know this. Please look at, we've got halls of fame for everything. I mean, things I didn't even know existed. I, I, I don't, it's mind numbing to me. And yet we touted, I have an honor student at such and such school. The only time I was ever an honor student was before I ever went. <laughs> and then it went downhill from there. But, but I, you just see this and it, it's, and the church has embraced it. There's nothing true of the mark, a truer mark of a Christian than humility. Because a true Christian has got to come to a point where they realize you're a worm. John Calvin called it worm theology. The only thing you're good for is drilling holes and eating dirt. And they're also, ah, no, wait, you mean something to God. Not as much as you think. I, I, I don't... I don't know. Paul in this section reminds the Corinthians that they should know the true man of God and they will know him by his humility. I watched a guy one time. I was doing a conference down in Albuquerque. It's been a number of years ago. And a guy got mad because I was one of the speakers that my name was ahead of his. And they had these handbill things. I didn't even know my name was on it. If I'd have known, I'd have sued. No. <laughs> uh, but he says, well, he doesn't have any training. He doesn't have been to seminary. He hasn't written anything. He hasn't published anything. And he got mad about it. I said, you know what, dude? Just take a marker and mark my name off of it. I mean, that's silly. That's silly. 
true man of God will be known by his humility. This section that we're going to go through, 12 through 18, I'll show you the evidence to look at and to look for the contrast between those accusing the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul. There are five things that you're going to see in this. Okay? And we'll pick that up next week. Father, we come before you, the author and the finisher. Father, we are nothing but garbage buckets. And yet, Father, I pray the power of your Spirit in our souls will move us in such a way that we understand the urgency of the day. But, Father, we would understand this massive privilege of being servants of the Most High God. Thank you, my Lord and my Savior, for what you have done. Thank you for what you will do. And, Father, I pray that if there's any of us struggling with, the, with pride, that, Father, that you peel it back and remove it from us this day. And that, Father, it be gone as far as the east is from the west. And that, Father, in absolute humility, understanding the power of our salvation, that, Lord, you would do an awesome work in each and every one of us. Thank you, my King. In Christ's name, amen.